Amen, and good morning to you. Uh, if you have your Bibles, I invite you to join me in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Uh, we're going to start in uh, verse 16, and I'll actually read from verse 16 into chapter 5, uh, verse 10. So once again, uh, chapter 4, verse 16 is where we will start. For those of you who do not uh, know me, my name is Mike Kazarowski. I serve as the lead pastor here. Uh, and I would love to meet you after service. So if you have a few minutes uh, and we haven't had the chance to meet yet, please, uh, the invitation is open to you if you've got a few minutes to spare. Um, before we begin, I do want to give you just one brief announcement of uh, something coming up. Um, now that we've been back in person since the pandemic started, we've been back in person for over a year now, uh, which has been a wonderful blessing. Um, we've, our leadership has felt very good uh, about how FAC and how us as a body of believers have handled the pandemic here. Uh, and so we actually feel it's time to get our services back closer together. Um, we uh, originally, when we came back, felt the need to keep them separate, uh, but we want to encourage fellowship and specifically fellowship among those who attend first service and fellowship among those who attend second service. Uh, and I want you to be assured that we are carefully watching the pandemic still. Uh, we are fully aware uh, that it is uh, cases are spiking throughout other portions of the country, but uh, the reality is that's not happening here in Erie County, and we're blessed for that. Um, and so while we, in this context, um, are watching carefully, we do feel like this is a good time to make the shift. And so in order to do this, in order to get our services closer together, uh, starting on September 12th, so we've got some time here, starting on September 12th, we're actually going to adjust the start time of our first service from 9 o'clock to 9.30 uh, the reason we specifically chose first service, you may be thinking, this is the service I always come to, why are you picking on me? Um, the reason we decided first service is that it's actually going to disrupt the least amount of current ministries here on Sunday morning, as we wanted to make this as easy uh, and the least disruptive as possible, knowing that it is going to be a little bit of a disruption. Um, and so this is going to cause the least amount of disruption, and uh, we've got some time to prepare for it as well. So once again, starting September 12th, uh, we will change the start time of our first service, uh, this service, from 9 o'clock to 9.30. Uh, second service will remain at 11 o'clock. And so um, for now, though, let's go ahead and look to God's Word this morning. Uh, once again, we'll be reading 2 Corinthians chapter 4, uh, starting in verse 16. This is what Paul writes. He says, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, uh, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we were, are always of good courage. 
We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Let's pray with me. Father, I pray as we come to your living word that you would reveal the things unseen to us and that we would live our lives not for the satisfaction of the world that we can tangibly observe, but for the world to come, which is eternal. Would you instill in our hearts by the power of your spirit a desire and a passion and a longing for the treasure that awaits us on the other side? And would we seek to be obedient to you in all things? In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. There is a famous uh, psychological study um, on delayed gratification called the marshmallow experiment. You've you've probably heard of it before. Um, In the experiment, you take a marshmallow and you set it out in front of a preschool child. And and you tell the child that you're going to leave the room And if they can resist the marshmallow until you come back in, uh, they will get two marshmallows instead of one. When you watch this experiment, which has been replicated many times, um, you you can pull it up on YouTube and watch this. You can just see the agonizing turmoil painted on the faces of these uh, little kids. Uh, You know, some of them will just kind of stare at the marshmallow uh, some of them will like pick it up and hold it and play with it and toss it from hand to hand. Others even smell it and lick it. And even some, many eventually give in and eat the marshmallow because they just can't ignore their desire for this immediate gratification of this fluffy, sweet treat. Uh, Walter Michel, he's the psychologist who originally conceived of this experiment back in the 70s. He performed it with many variations. Uh, And one of the variations was in which the child had to wait a certain amount of time for a greater reward, um, but the marshmallow actually wasn't sitting right in front of the kid. He he explained that if uh, you wait a certain amount of time, you'll get two marshmallows, but if you call us back before the time expires, before the time is up, we're just going to give you uh, one marshmallow. Uh, But you've got to wait longer for the greater reward. And what Michelle found was that the preschoolers who were instructed to wait 15 minutes for the greater reward waited much less time when the treat was in sight. There was a direct correlation when the, when the treat was in sight with how long they were willing to wait. It's a silly little experiment, but it's one in which us as adults, many of us resonate, can resonate with, because we enjoy instant gratification, even if there's promise or hope of a bigger reward in the future. We buy into the idiom, right, that a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. It's, it's better to hold on to something. It's better to hold on to something that I already have than to risk losing it by uh, trying to attain something better, something greater. We, we desire the things 
that are seen because if they are seen, we convince ourselves that they are sure and they are secure and they are comfortable and they are uh, guaranteed if I have it. And this is the very reason why many of us struggle to save money because it's more gratifying in the moment to spend it now than save it for a rainy day. This is the reason why many people struggle to to work out because it's more gratifying in the moment to sit on the couch and watch my TV for hours. And this is the very reason that many people go to great lengths to avoid any sort of physical pain or suffering or weakness because it's more gratifying in the moment to be comfortable than it is to suffer. But then we come across a guy like the Apostle Paul who is quite the enigma because you track his ministry throughout even the book of Acts and it seems as though the guy was just a glutton for punishment. Every time he would go to a new city and tell them about Jesus, they either tried to kill him or they ran him out of the city. And even as we come to the end of Acts sometime next year, spoiler alert, Paul ends up on death row in Rome. You look at that and you're tempted to the point to say, Paul, what are you doing? Just go home, man. Like, like, you are literally wasting away. You have nothing to gain here and everything to lose. Why do you put yourself out like that? Why do you sacrifice yourself like that? Why do you willingly walk into these situations where you know that there's going to be persecution, where you know you're going to be tried and tested, where you know that you are weak? What are you doing, Paul? And Paul says here in 2 Corinthians that he does such things He lives in such a way and doesn't grow discouraged. He doesn't lose heart because he looks to the things, not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. Paul says we don't primarily focus on the current problems or the current circumstance or the current pain or the current weakness, but instead we look to the things beyond that. We experience those things, but our focus isn't on the here and now. It's, it's, it's on the things beyond that. Paul makes the claim that the most precious and important realities, the things that are, are worth it, are the things that are beyond our scope of the observation, beyond our physical senses. Now, we need to camp out right here for a little bit because that is a bold claim in and of itself, that there are things that are seen and unseen. Because a good portion of our world, if not the majority, buys into the claim that all you see, all that you observe with your own senses is all there is. There is nothing else beyond the observable universe. And the world says that because there is nothing more that we can see with our own two eyes, then we must live for today. We must live for now. We soak up all that life has to offer because life can offer no more than what you can see right now. The 1989 film Dead Poets Society delivers this message. This is the whole premise of the movie. Robin Williams plays an English teacher, high school English teacher. And in one of the scenes, he has one of his students read the first stanza of a poem 
that goes like this. Gather ye rosebuds while ye may. Old time is still a-flying. And this same flower that smiles today, tomorrow will be dying. This idea of do what you can now because old time is just clicking away and you might be breathing today, but tomorrow you'll be dying. And William's character goes on to explain that the Latin term for that sentiment is carpe diem, seize the day. And he says that the writer uses these lines because, quote, we are food for worms. Because believe it or not, each and every one of us in this room is one day going to stop breathing, turn cold, and die. It's a direct quote from the movie. And so while many declare, seize the day, live for today because there is no tomorrow, Paul says, no, seize the day Because there is tomorrow. Because there is something greater on the other side that we cannot see. There is something unseen that is worth living for, that is worth fighting for, something worth devoting and sacrificing your entire life for. Something unseen that is worth walking through all of the junk and all of the hardship and all of the burden that life throws our way. And it's worth it. Because there is greater value in the things unseen than the things unseen. And and Paul goes on to, to compare the two in our text that we read a moment ago. He compares the worth of the things unseen and it primarily has to do with their permanency. At the end of verse 18, we read that the things are seen are transient. Or in other words, they are temporary. They will not last. And so sure, we can build up our wealth and we can build up our success and and our riches and our experience. We can seize the day. We can live for today. And there will come a day where none of it matters. Where it's all in vain. Where everything seen will be destroyed. There is nothing that we can observe. There is nothing that we can lay our eyes on that is permanent. From the possessions that we have to our resumes to the very earth itself, to the farthest star. All of the seen things are temporary. Down in verse 4, Paul describes the the mortal as being swallowed up by life, specifically overtaken by the life that's to come. The, The unseen view of eternity will swallow up, completely overtake the things we see right now, and they will be no more. And Paul uses this illustration of a tent that, that is so easily destroyed or dismantled. That was Paul's job aside from being an apostle, a pastor. He was a tent maker. And so he knew the temporary nature of a tent. And he said that our bodies are nothing more than a tent. There's no, there's no permanency in a tent. By its very nature, a tent is designed to be dismantled and to be transported and to be transient. It's not meant to last. And this is why we take up Paul's guidance in looking to the things, uh, not to the things that are seen, because why should I care what I lose in the mortal body when it's going to be swallowed up in the life to come anyway? What difference does it make if I attain all of the wealth and all of the health and all of the success of this world when those things won't matter when all is said and done? Paul says, no, instead, 
Instead, I will use my time here on earth without regard for what I can achieve in this life and gain in the flesh. And instead, I will look to the things unseen. I will live my life for the things unseen because the things unseen are eternal. They have infinite worth. They have infinite value because they are eternal, because they will last. Paul may be persecuted in the flesh. His tent may be dismantled and as he decays. But Paul knows that once the tent is destroyed, and it will be, what's waiting for him in Christ is a building from God. His body will be transformed into a permanent place. He will find his eternal home with God. We, we as believers, what Paul is speaking to is the transformation that we are going to, uh, uh, that, that we're going to experience in the body. We're going to be resurrected. We're going to be given our bodies back, but this time it's not going to be a tent. It's going to be a building made by God. It's going to be permanent. We will be resurrected and given glorified, perfect, eternal bodies. Paul fixes his eyes of faith on the things unseen because the things unseen are the permanent things. Therefore, they are the things worth focusing on. That is what's to come. We eagerly await that day. But what are we to do until that day? Right? We, while we live fixing our eyes on the horizon, on the unseen things of tomorrow, we're still stuck living in the tent today. And so where does this leave us in this life? What sort of implications are there for our lives today? What kind of impact does this idea have on us right now? I see three ones in the, in the text that Paul explains, main ones. There's three implications. First, the first implication in looking to the things unseen is that this actually leaves us in a position of, of groaning. You might think, well, I've, I've taught my kids not to groan and not to grumble. There is such thing as a godly groaning. There we groan as a child groans in the days leading up to Christmas. He groans anticipating his gifts. In the same way, we groan in the days leading up to Jesus' return as we eagerly await our new gifts, our glorified bodies, our our, our uh, fellowship with Jesus himself in the flesh. There should be a longing, a longing in our hearts for the glory that awaits us, a groaning for glorified bodies, a groaning for the presence of Jesus and his return. It's no coincidence in the closing words of the Bible, if you were to turn to Revelation, uh, the end of the book, it's no coincidence that in one of the closing verses, Jesus says, surely I am coming soon. That's a promise. I'm coming. And the church responds collectively, amen, come Lord Jesus. That is the cry of the collective church as one of groaning. Amen. Come Lord Jesus, please come. When Jesus says, surely I am coming soon, the church doesn't say, well, that's nice, Jesus, but you know what? You can take your time. There's, there's no rush here, right? We're really enjoying ourselves. We're doing just fine. We enjoy your gifts that you give us uh, uh, enough. And so, Jesus, just be patient. No. We're the ones saying, Jesus, where have you been? We read the headlines. We see the crises. We see the political unrest. We see the civil unrest. And we say, Jesus, would you just put us out of our misery? Like, come on. What are you waiting for? 
This is a groaning. That's ridiculous. The, the, the believer would, would, would never say that. They would never say, Jesus, take your time. But there are many that act that way. Right? How many times have I acted that way? But Jesus, I can't wait for you to return, but there's some things on earth I would like to experience before you come back. I've said that before in my youth, and, and, and I regret it. I recognize the lack of groaning. I recognize that our lives communicate something different. We groan because the object, the highest object of our satisfaction, has not been fully realized yet. And if we don't groan, if there isn't a yearning in our hearts for the presence of Jesus, it means that we have found our satisfaction in something else. John Piper, who wrote an excellent book on fasting. If you're interested in fasting, I highly recommend this book. Uh, he, he wrote a book on fasting called A Hunger for God. And in its, expo- in its introduction, he explains that there should be a sort of homesickness for God. We should be homesick for, for God and heaven and his presence. Yet many believers don't experience that homesickness. And Piper gives the explanation of why that happens. This is what he writes. He says, if you don't feel strong desires... For the manifestation of the glory of God, it is not because you have drunk deeply and are satisfied. It is because you have nibbled so long at the table of the world. It is that your soul is stuffed with small things and there is no room for the great. God did not create you for this, Piper writes. There is an appetite for God and it can be awakened. Too often we find our satisfaction in the things seen and we are content, snacking on the breadcrumbs off the floor rather than eagerly anticipating the feast on the table that is unseen at the moment. And so this very morning is your understanding of Jesus' return, some fuzzy, distant event that will be nice and pleasant when it just happens to come? Or is there this resolute and determined craving to see Jesus' plan come to fruition in this life rather than the next because I don't want to wait a second longer than I have to. That's the first implication of looking to the things unseen. It should cause us to groan. We groan. Second, verse 6, we walk in courage. Or, Or in other words, we walk confidently. Right? We, we, we groan in that we'd rather be in the presence of Jesus, but since we aren't home, at home with the Lord, since we have to be in this tent for now, we can at least always be of good courage. We can always walk confidently. We, walking in faith, not by sight, is how Paul walks confidently. It's how Paul copes, really, with being frail and weak and wounded. Right? The condition of being a jar of clay, uh, like we looked at last week, doesn't change. Paul still experiences the pain and the brokenness and the suffering. But something does change. What does change is his perspective. Many times when, at, uh, when walking through uh, hardship, we focus on the circumstance at hand because it takes front and center, because it's seen. 
But the believer is called to confidently and courageously look beyond the circumstance. We need to change our perspective. There was a time in Paul's life where all he cared about were the things seen, but then there was a shift in his mind when he met Jesus. And he stopped looking at the temporary things seen and changed his focus on the eternal things unseen. And this is what enabled him to go on and do ministry courageously. And this is the primary primary application of this passage. The primary application of this passage is that this is in a ministry context. We are courageously, boldly able to give ourselves over to ministry, give up our lives in ministry for the sake of God's glory. We can take up our cross, sacrifice, give up our life, and follow Jesus in this life because we know what's to come in the next life. We walk by faith and not by sight, is what Paul says. And he mentions in the earlier verses of the passage that we read that whatever we give up in the present for the sake of God actually pales in comparison to what God will grant us in the future. Right? There is not, we can't outgive God. Whatever we sacrifice and give to God, He's going to outdo us. He's going to show us up for good reason. The, the worst that we, that we could give up is our life. The worst that the world can, can do to us is kill us. But even then, our tent will be exchanged for a permanent building from God. Paul's saying, I'll take that trade off. They can kill me for all they want. And it doesn't matter. That just means that I'm going to get to go home and be with the Lord. That's confidence. That's walking in courage. See, if you are in Christ, you win no matter what happens in this world. We can't lose. Paul explains that those experiences of hardship are nothing compared to what's to come. Those afflictions that you see me walk through, they're light. They're like a feather. And not only are they light, but they're, they're, they're momentary. It's a temporary thing in comparison to the heavy, eternal glory that waits. Paul gives us an image of a scale almost back in verse 17 as he compares the two different weights, the, the weight of affliction and the weight of the eternal glory. And, and the weight of eternal glory breaks the scale. It's not even a comparison. There is no comparison. There is nothing in this life that we will experience that is so hard that it is not worth walking through to obtain the eternal weight of glory on the other side of death. There is no amount of pain that God could call us to and call us through where we say, that's it. I quit. This is just not worth it anymore. I'm not willing to do this anymore. That will never happen. If you truly understand what's to come, if you truly understand the value and the worth of the things unseen. I've mentioned it in the past. Um, My family, we're a big fan of the show, uh, The Amazing Race. And if you're unfamiliar with the show, it's a reality show where teams of two people uh, face uh, race around the world for a prize of $1 million. 
And each episode is a leg of the race. And uh, in each leg, teams come across challenges that they must complete before moving on to their one destination, uh, to their next destination. And on one occasion, which has become rather kind of infamous in, in the amazing race lore and fanhood, there was a contestant who would not go down a 60-foot water slide because of a crippling fear of heights and a crippling fear of water. She wouldn't do it. And her partner, I think it was her boyfriend, is yelling at her, saying, what are you, what are you talking about? This is for a million dollars. You won't go down a water slide for a million dollars? You won't conquer your fear for a million dollars? And as viewers, we watch that and say, that's just absurd. But as believers, how many times do we choose comfort and security in this temporary life because we don't have our eyes on the prize? And what we're going to get is greater than a million dollars. Our, our, our minds are often not fixed on the eternal way to glory. And you may sit here and, and, and still struggle and say, but I can't see the unseen things. How do I know? How, how can I, where is the assurance? How ultimately can I know that God will come through on this? Well, Paul says we know that God will come through because while we don't experience the fullness of God yet, we have been given a foretaste of what's to come in person, uh, in the person of the Holy Spirit. That's verse 5. What Paul says, he writes that God has given the Spirit to us as a guarantee to the unseen things to come. Another word for guarantee here is the word pledge. A pledge. It's a guarantee. It's, it's earnest money that a buyer gives to a seller, which prior to an actual transaction, to prove that the buyer is good for it, right? that the buyer is committed to the agreement, that he will come through on, on, on the deal. God has pledged to us through the Holy Spirit that this transaction will come to fruition that we will indeed have an eternal building waiting for us when our earthly bodies, when the tent is destroyed. There is a certainty to this. Now, many people uh, like to take this passage, and they, they, whenever you talk about end times, they try and determine what the end times are going to look like, right? They get out their charts, and they get out their calendars, and they get out their timelines and bulletin board, and they get out their string, and they try to connect passages, and they try to connect events. Uh, however, we should not do that. This should not be our focus here in this passage. We can easily get lost in that, and it's a distraction for why Paul writes here. Why does Paul write here? This passage is not meant to present a timeline for Christ's return. It's not meant to be an essay on the precise patterns of heaven and exactly what that's going to look like. It's not as important to Paul here as to how it happens or when it happens. What's important to Paul here in this context is the certainty, the guarantee that it will happen. Paul's saying, no matter what it looks like, and no matter when it occurs, we can take it to the bank that it's going to happen because we have a pledge from God that it will. And because we are confident that it will happen, we are always of good courage, even when the going gets tough. Paul was able to be one of the boldest men to ever walk the planet in history because of the guarantee that God gave him in the Holy Spirit. That's the second implication for us as we look to things unseen. The third and final implication for focusing on the things unseen is that our aim is to please Jesus in this life. 
And our aim in this life is to please Jesus because there will be a day when I have to stand before him and I have to give an account for how I lived my life. Once again, uh, is the reality of a future resurrection just this distant, fuzzy moment that has no relevance for us today? Or are you fully aware that there will, be a com- there will come a day where you will come face to face with Jesus as a judge? While Paul was fully aware that his body would be renewed and that he would inherit great riches of eternal life, his ultimate desire was to please God. He didn't want God for his stuff. He wanted God. He wanted to stand before Jesus and hear the words, well done, my good and faithful servant. I'm proud of you. It's interesting in these closing verses how it says that Jesus will will give what is due, whether good or evil. Because I'm reminded of many times I've spoken with people in the past who have feel like they've experienced some kind of injustice committed against them in whatever circumstance. And how often do you hear, I just want what I deserve. Give me my due. A great injustice has happened. I want what I deserve. And I always respond to people and say that in the grand scheme of things, I promise you that you don't. I promise you that you do not want what is due. Because when we stand before Jesus, we will be found to be sinners. Romans 3.23, we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Jesus is the perfect judge. And if you were to stand before his judgment seat by your own merit, you would be declared guilty. That would be your due. That that would be what would, would come to you. But thanks be to God that the verse in Romans 3 doesn't stop at verse 23. It continues on to uh, 3.24. We are justified, declared innocent, declared righteous, freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. It would be very easy to read these final verses and think that we must earn Christ's favor and that those who are good will be rewarded and that those who are evil will be punished. But when you read it in context you will come to find that we are all guilty and we are all deserving of punishment until we find our righteousness in Jesus. You will come to find in the very next passage that we'll look at next week that God has actually reconciled himself to us. He has reconciled us to himself in Christ and that those who are in Christ who have trusted him for their salvation, have have trusted Jesus do not have their trespasses, their sin, counted against them. Yes, we have trespassed, but God looks to the innocent of his son, Jesus, instead of our guilt. And now, walking in this life, having been reconciled to God, we have the ability to please him because we are no longer his enemy. Because we are no longer declared guilty, we are innocent. And so we eagerly await that day to experience God in all of his fullness in Christ. And as we wait for that day, the day that we trade these tents for our permanent and final dwelling place, I urge us that God and not just his things, that God would be the object of our desires and our satisfactions and our gratification and our decisions. Would you pray with me? And Heavenly Father, 
we recognize that this world is a, a light and a moment, momentary place. Lord, I pray that um, even today, whatever issues we are dealing with, whatever hardship we are experiencing, we, we recognize that it's painful, Lord. We don't discredit that, the pain at all. Um, but what does help us is looking beyond the circumstance and looking to you, Lord. I pray that we would not um, view you through the lens of our circumstances, but rather, Lord, we would look at our circumstances through the lens of your eyes. Would, would you keep us? Would you save us? And Lord, we just we long for the day that Jesus will make all things right. Would that happen even this day? And in your holy name I pray. Amen.